I will be reading 1 Corinthians 13 from the King James Version. Though as I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believe all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass, darkly. But then face to face, now I know in part. But then shall I know even as I know, also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, Charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. This is the word of our Lord. So how long are you going to be out of town? Sunday morning. Well, I'm worried. About what? About being alone with her all weekend. I mean, what if she burns the place down? Well, just keep an eye on her and make sure you've always got the fire extinguisher handy. You ready to launch her? Yeah. Good push. So why did she move in with you anyways? Because we love each other and because we want to share our life together. We already had a life with Mommy. But Mommy and I weren't getting along very well. And it wasn't fair to you guys, us fighting all the time. I fight with Anna all the time. Can I move out? No. But you guys are brother and sister. Well, you were husband and wife. Doesn't that mean something? Yes, it does. But, well, when you get older, your relationships get a lot more complicated. And there are all kinds of feelings flying around. And sometimes... Some of those feelings change. But did you fall out of love with Mommy? Well... Yeah. I guess I did. I still love you, Mom. It just became a different kind of love, that's all. We're still really good friends, and we always will be. 
Can you ever fall out of love with your kids? No. That is impossible. Like Mission Impossible. Yeah, exactly like Mission Impossible. <laughs> Maybe you've heard this from time to time, that the longer that two people stay together in a marriage, the more and more they look like each other. Anybody? I see some hands and some giggles. Uh, There was a University of Michigan psychologist who conducted an experiment to test that phenomenon. And what he found was that when he took pictures of couples taken when they were newlyweds, and then he took pictures of of the same couples 25 years later, and he looked at them and he analyzed them side by side, what he found was couples really had grown to look more like each other over time. And as a matter of fact, the happier that the couple said they were, the more likely they were to have increased in their physical similarity. And one of the, one of the reasons that he gives for this is that, that people are in close contact with one another, and when they spend... That time, uh, that time together over extended periods, over years and decades, close contact like that tends to bring out imitation and mimicry. And so he explained it this way. He said, in other words, if your partner has a good sense of humor and laughs a lot, then there will be laugh lines on their face. And guess what will be on your face? Because you hang around them, you laugh with them, You laugh at them, right? And those love lines, those laugh lines will be etched in your face as well. And that's one of the theories that he came up with. Now, God has attributes, traits, and characteristics that he absolutely wants us to have, that he wants us to catch, that he wants etched on our face and our hands. Uh, And they, they are attributes of God that we need to catch to live life well and the, the great thing, the trick here is that all we really have to do, much like just hanging around a person that we're close to for a long t- period of time, all we really have to do to catch these traits of God is to hang around him. And then we catch them. We're infected with them. The closer we become to God, the more transferred to us are these traits and characteristics. Through our continued and intimate contact with him, We grow in the characteristics that God himself has. We could put it this way. You've heard this line, more is caught than is taught, right? And if we can catch the traits and the characteristics of even the people that we're around all the time that are close to us, if that's true, then how much more true is it about you and God? The closer we get to God, the more we begin to resemble him and reflect him in our lives. And of course, there are lots of attributes of God that are worthy of that kind of reflection, but the ultimate among them is what we've been talking about all month. It's love, love. If you could only catch one attribute of God, it would be this one. Biblically, I know that we can say it would have to be this one. And today, what was read for you is the most famous passage on love. It's 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, I want you to turn there. Willie read from the King James Version, very flowery. Maybe you have a different version. That's okay. But what I want to do is chop this, this text up into three parts. Uh, verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 7, and then verses 8 to 13. And that first section deals with this. Why love is more important than anything else. When Paul sets out to write, he answers that question in these first 
three verses. They're very familiar lines here. He says, if I speak, if I have prophetic powers, if I have all this knowledge given to me about God, if I can go out into the world and move mountains, if I could offer myself and in service to others and move mountains for people in their lives, if, if I have a lot of money and if I can give it all away, if I could give my very life away, all of those things, if, I, if I'm able to do all of those things, but I can't do them, I don't do them without love, then it's as if I didn't do them at all. Why is love first on the list when Paul will write write later in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, love, right? That's the first on the list. Why is it first? Because real Christianity is only determined by love. There's nothing else. Notice the activities that he mentions that I just rattled off. Those are good things to do, right? Right? Those are good goals to achieve. Those make life better for everyone when we do them. But Paul gets underneath the activities themselves to the why, to the motivation. Why are we doing these good things? Why did you come here to church this morning? Why are you sitting in this pew? Why are we gathered around the table? Why are we singing songs? That's a weird thing to do in a group. Why do we open this book and share together? And it's because Christianity can absolutely be counterfeited. We can go through the motions. We can pretend. Religious activity, no matter what religion you're talking about, is usually the same. There's a a truth claim of some sort. And that truth claim involves teaching and maybe some prophetic words and maybe some special gifts and, and people who go out and give their lives and their resources and their money to this cause, even their very lives. All that's the same. The activity is the same. The difference, Paul says, is the motivation behind it. That's what's telling. And that can be very, very different, even for people in this room. And so as I go out and I help somebody rake their leaves, why am I doing that? That's the important question. Am I I doing that for the right reason? Paul says the right reason is love, love. Christianity will always be busy. It will always be active. But that's not the determining factor for whether your faith is real or not. What proves whether you have a real faith is becoming more and more like Jesus in the motive behind your behavior, and that's love. Here's a very frightening test, but it's one we ought to take and give ourselves from time to time. We need to ask ourselves this. Am I more or less irritable right now than I was this time six months ago or a year ago or two years ago? Am I more or less anxious than I was at this time long ago? Am I more or less patient today? than I was even last week? Am I more or less content? Am I more or less peaceful? Am I more or less loving than I was just a short time ago? And the answer to that question determines whether you're growing or not. Love is more important than anything else because it proves that our faith is real. And so that's the first chunk of what Paul writes. The second chunk, verses four to seven, look there. There was a story about a wedding And at this wedding, it was a big wedding, right? And people came and uh, uh, there was a reception after the wedding. And at the reception after the wedding, there are guests all around the table. It's a big, big room and they're all filled. And there's this one table with younger people 
who are both friends of bride and groom. Some of them know each other, some of them don't. And they begin to talk about the wedding and what they liked. And, oh, that wasn't that great. And the flowers were great. And, oh, this is food's wonderful. And they get to know each other a little bit. And finally, somebody says, you know what? We just watched two people kind of pledge their love to one another. What, what is love to you? What do you think it is? That's the question that was asked. And so they went around the table. And of course, you can imagine there are lots of answers that were shared. There are lots of perspective, different backgrounds people are coming from. One said, well, it's like magic. It's like the fairy dust, you know, that you sprinkle on a marriage to make it work. Somebody else said, it's like it's being blind to an extent. Because to really love somebody, you kind of have to overlook some things in their life. Somebody else said, it either happens or it doesn't. It's a feeling that you get when you're around somebody. It's, it's something when it just happens, you just know it. You just know it. Finally, they come to a young woman by herself who, who was a Christian. She was the only Christian at the table. And she said this. She said, here's what I believe. I believe that love is patient. Love is kind. The love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I believe that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Here's what I believe. I, I believe that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Here's what I believe. I believe that love never ends. There's a stunned silence around the table. After a few seconds... Finally, somebody popped up. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Did you write that? They hadn't been to very many weddings, right? Or the right ones. Paul, in these lines, probably gives us the best lines on love that have ever been written. They still stun people. They still bring people to silence. They just did. All you have to do is read them. And he gives a line of descriptors to communicate what love is. Why is love important? And now we're moving to what love is. What is this thing called love? And so let's walk through it. He says love is patient. It means to put up with people, to show self-restraint. It's a capacity to accept the stress that sometimes another person can put on you. How many of you know that people are draining? Love is patient. Love is kind. Patience puts up with a lot. And if that's what patience is, then kindness gives out a lot. Kindness always does good to people, even when they irritate you. He says, love does not envy. It doesn't begrudge another person for their lot in life. It doesn't look at somebody else in, in their life and their fortune in life and either say on one hand, I wish I had that. Or on the other hand, oh, they have that and I wish they didn't. I hope they don't in the future. Love doesn't do that. It does not envy. It does not boast. It isn't concerned with getting, this is so hard. This is, this is where I fall. Love isn't concerned with getting my story into the conversation so that I can look good in the eyes of others. You ever been in that spot? It does not boast. Love is not proud. The word in Willie's translation is exactly how it should be translated. It means puffed up. The word is it, love is not puffed up like a balloon. Some people are so full of themselves because of what God has given them in life that they fail to ever use those gifts so that others will benefit. And the picture of that, a great picture, is 
somebody getting water from God. And instead of putting that water in a pipe and directing it out to other people so that they can come and turn a faucet and drink themselves, instead of that, this person has a big bucket. And, it, and they're just filling their bucket with more and more water. And it's getting bigger and bigger. And they just keep filling up their own bucket instead of giving that to other people. Paul says love doesn't do that. It's not proud. It's not puffed up like that. It's not rude. It's not ill-mannered or ungrateful or boastful or harsh or overbearing or any of the other adjectives that we could use for rude. It's not self-seeking. It does not insist on its own rights. It doesn't say, what about me? Instead, it says, what in this situation are my responsibilities? It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love is not touchy. It's not Oscar the Grouch. Love is easy to live with. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Are there people in your life, when they pop up in front of you, they always seem to be keeping score? Do I owe you this time or do you owe me? And there's clearly a ledger in their brain. Paul says love doesn't do that. It doesn't keep record of wrongs. It doesn't keep score. He says love does not delight in evil. On one hand, love doesn't seek out a life of living that's destructive, right? But in another sense, this kind of love doesn't ever search for the mistakes and the evil that it could find in the lives of other people. Oh, did you hear that? Oh, I can't believe that. Oh, how dare them? Love never digs for the juicy story. It always rejoices with the truth. There's no intentional sticking out of a leg to trip somebody here, right? It's just a celebration of what is right and what is good in the life of somebody else. It always rejoices with the truth. And then it always protects. And this is the tough side of love. The sense of the word is protection and the picture of the word is a roof. Everybody look above you. What do you see? You see lights and a ceiling. But above that, there's a roof, right? And what does that roof do for us? It's protection. It shields us from the wind and the rain and hot and cold from the weather outside. The the purpose of a roof is to protect the contents inside the building. And sometimes love doesn't seem like love because it has to make decisions that will hurt Love isn't always a woo-woo kind of thing. Sometimes love is a scalpel that has to cut. But always cuts for the bigger purpose of preserving a life. Sometimes love has to be the shield, like a roof, that takes the arrows, that takes the wind, that takes the rain, so that other people are shielded and safe. It has to be the roof of protection. How many of you are parents and you know that this is true? In order to save my kids, sometimes I have to hurt them or what seems like hurting them. Love always trusts. It takes God and men at their word and believes the best about everyone. It always hopes. It anticipates a future because the future is always in God's hands. Love is optimistic. Love thinks the best about people and situations. It looks past where someone is and instead love sees where they could be. That's hard to do. It always hopes. Now, if you study this list, 
you'll find that the first half of the list are all about having patience with people. And that's how we love them the best. We, had, we just have patience with people. And the second part of the list is all about having patience in situations. And when we're able to have patience in the situations, we can love people that are in those situations with us. And that's what the Corinthians were having a hard time with. And so Paul's message to them is this. Here's what love is. Love is outward focused. Love is an outward focus on others instead of an inward focus on me. Love doesn't use people. Love instead seeks to serve people and free them and help them to become what God wants them to be. Now, if you were paying attention, uh, you'll notice that I failed to mention the very last one in the famous list. What is the very last one? It's in verse 8. It's the first phrase. Love never fails. Love never ends. The word is one that means to remain under. It's the kind of word that we get when two people gather in front of a crowd like this and stand on a stage and they hold each other's hands and they say, I will. I take you as my husband. I take you as my wife and I will remain here. I will stay here for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse until when death do us part. I will remain here I will stay put. Why is love first on the list? Because it's the most important attribute of God for us to catch because it proves that we're not pretending when we come here and have faith, right? Or we go out there and have faith. What love is, it's an outward focus on others. But now here's where there's no room for error in verses 8 to 13. This is about what love does. What love does. Real love stays put. Real love remains Real love never fails. It lasts. Paul's lines in this section are all about the kinds of things that we might outgrow, the kind of things that we might not need anymore down the line. There are prophecies. And he says, you know what? Someday we won't need those. There are special gifts uh, for us today. And someday we're not going to need those. Even the great things about the faith will be on that list, even faith and hope. One day I will see God face to face and there will be a certain kind of faith that I will no longer need because I can see God face to face. Now it's just through a dim, dim mirror, a really bad mirror. And one day all of my hopes will be realized. All those things as a Christian that I'm hoping for down the road, One day they will be realized and there will be no need for that kind of hope anymore once they are realized. But Paul says that's never going to be the case with love. Love will never be on a list like that. Love will never be outgrown or unnecessary. Love will be needed forever and it will last forever because the bedrock of love is that it stays put. Our lives are the proving grounds for this kind of love, especially, especially in marriage. Um, I wish I could uh, document the stat for you better. I just know I've read it and I'm not sure where I read it. And so if you press me on this, I can't give you any documentation, but here's what I read. I read statistically what the, the, the number, uh, the year in marriage that, that yields the greatest satisfaction for couples. That's what I read. Now, I want you to think about that question. What year in marriage 
would be the most satisfying year. And I want you to put a number in your head. I want you to guess, you know, what year of marriage would be the most satisfying year of marriage is the number there. Okay. How many of you are like zero to five? Okay. How many of you are like five to 15? Anybody? Okay. How many of you uh, got the answer from the first service? Okay. (laughs) How many of you are 25 plus or over? Yeah. Lots of hands. Um, Here's the statistic that I ran across. The most satisfying year of marriage statistically is year 37. 37. Isn't that amazing? Now, little tip, if you're a guy in the room and your wife asks you this question, it's always this year, dear. Okay? Just saying. But statistically, year 37. Wow. If that's true, then the number one ingredient for a happy and successful marriage, get this, is just to stay put. Just stay. Just remain. And so many people in our culture will never have that chance because they don't. Can I give you a hypothetical situation? And it's really not a hypothetical because it happens all the time. And it's an example of how we get this attribute of love absolutely right on one hand. And then on the other hand, we get it so wrong that it crushes us and it destroys our lives. And this will be hard to hear, but it's absolutely true. It is not uncommon for there to be marriages much like the clip that we showed earlier. Where 5, 10, 15, 20 years in, one spouse comes forward and says, I want out. Because there's no longer any love. Yeah, you know the line, right? And I want you to understand what's happening in that kind of a situation. Because probably in those marriages, there were kids involved. And it's an amazing thing. Kids require the kind of love that we've just been talking about. Kids force us to live this list even all the way through. There's, there's, nobody has to twist our arms to do this with our kids. You do whatever you have to do. And you do it for a long time. And you don't love based on feelings. You love because they're your kids. And you get nothing, literally nothing back for a long time. And even when you do get something back, it never adequately repays you, right? Here's 40 bucks, Dad, for all that you've done for me. Thank you, son. Appreciate that. You never get repaid. But you never need to be repaid, do you? No, because they're your kids. No one has to convince you to adhere to Paul's list when it comes to your kids. You love in spite of your feelings, and as a result, your love for your children grows incredibly strong to the point, hypothetically speaking, that if this child becomes goes out in the world and becomes an absolute jerk and makes the worst decisions possible and destroys his life and the lives of other people, what do you still do as a parent? You still love, right? You sacrifice, you protect, you hope. Are there any moms and dads that can say, yeah. But at the very same time, in this hypothetical situation, I want you to see what happens. What happens when a spouse begins to act like a child? What happens when a spouse does something stupid, immature, something awful, and they will because they always do? 
What happens when the other spouse is called on to love them in spite of their actions, to love and sacrifice, to love with a kind of protection so that they take the pain in hopes that one day they'll wake up? And too often, this is the line, well, if they're not going to be that, then I don't have to be this. And what naturally flows out of that is a mindset that thinks they're not who they were. That's not who I married. I don't think I like who they've become. And since I don't like who they've become, I don't have to love them. And suddenly Paul's list is optional. And I just want you to compare both of those cases, okay? I want you to see what's going on because with our children... We have loved despite our feelings, and our love only deepens for them. But in that other case, we've begun to love solely based on our feelings. And instead of love growing and deepening, our love diminishes and fades, and sometimes it dies. With our children, the more we love, the more we like them, and the more we're committed to them. Even for kids that are unlovable, we still love them. But in the other case... The less we love, the less we like, and the less we like, the less we love. And what has happened? What's happened in those two pictures? It's pretty simple. Biblical love was used in one case, and a fake pretend counterfeit love based on feelings and what can you give me attitude was used in the other. And so one spouse pops up and says there's no longer any love. And they're probably right, because there was never love to begin with. And on the other hand, has anybody ever heard of people divorcing their kids? Even the guy in the clip that was stammering around, I don't know how to explain this, it's really complicated. Oh, but I will never stop loving you. It's a weird thought. I get it, there are people who have walked out on their kids. I know that, but generally speaking. True love is almost always present in one parent or another with their kids because love stays put. Love stays put. What if it would stay put in our marriages? What if it would stay put in our churches? What if it would stay put in our jobs? What if it would stay put in our families and in our relationships? If there's one thing that we need to walk out of here today with, it's, it's that message. Stay put. That's what love does. It remains. How in the world do I do that? When I have all these reasons not to, how in the world do I do that? And the answer is, you have to look at the cross. Why did he stay there? He didn't have to stay there. Why did he take that kind of abuse for somebody like me who isn't who he made me to be? I am a different person than what he committed to in the first place. I am. I have strayed off the path. I am the most unlovable, adulterous, lying, treasonous subject that the king of kings could ever have. Why did he stay on the cross for me? The answer is love. Love stays. He went through hell and endured more persecution by men than any other man has ever known because he's a spouse, he's a savior, he's a messiah, he's a king that will not leave. And so how do I stay like that with people in my life? The answer is you have to get close to the cross. 
the closer we get, the more of that love rubs on, uh, off onto us. The closer we get to the cross, the more we see what Jesus has done for us, the more those love lines that are in his hands become etched into our own, and the more we mirror what he has done for us. After I see how Christ responded to me in love and stayed put, how can I do anything else? That's what love does. Stays put. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us the greatest gift ever, that you, you stayed put on the cross. And because of that, we, your children who went off on our own way, and have failed to love in so many circumstances and so many situations to the point that it's destructive and destroyed our lives, to us, you've said, I will stay put. Father, that, that love only gets one kind of response, and that's to love in return. Father, help us to do that today. Help us to love you for what you've done and help us to love each other as a result of what you've done. There might be somebody in here that has never known your love. Maybe that love is just a foreign concept to them. Everybody in their life, it seems, is not staying put. They're, they're doing the opposite. Father, would you be that rock? Would you be that foundation? Would you be that roof of protection? in their life so that they will know that they are loved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.